because, because I'm a hot I'm girl. A hot, I'm girl. A girl. I do hot shit. Because I'm a hot girl. like housing justice, um, anti-fascist work, and issues focused on Asian American or AAPI communities from a kind of anti-imperialist lens. Um, I used to be like a kind, I used to be a local comedian, which is like the same thing as like, I guess saying I used to be a local, like, I don't know, cash register operator. Like it's not really a big deal. Um, and especially because stand up is over. Now I'm just a poster. So like, you know. <laughs> the most honorable of professions, the poster. Yeah. yeah, you know, I try and wield my posting blade like as honorably as I can out here. <laughs> it's difficult. Uh, Anna, could you repeat like the first two sentences of what you just said? Because I, I like I was not quite recording it. So I like quit. Oh, pressed it is, real quick. I know yeah. I jumped in too. I thought we were going to cut it out. I was like, You're no, totally oh. the no. I didn't know. Like, uh, I didn't know okay. when the button was going to get hit. So thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me again, Rara Yesi. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, my name is Anna. Um, I'm a community organizer in Atlanta. Uh, my focus areas are things like housing justice. I do anti-fascist work, and I also do a lot of work focused on Asian American communities, particularly from an anti-imperialist lens. Um, and uh, like I said, I used to be a comedian, uh, but comedy is over now. No one is actually allowed to laugh. Uh, it's been it's the CDC is actually recommended against it. So now I'm just a poster like everybody else. And boy, do I love it. It's great posting. <laughs> Real low effort, um, really low commitment. You can just jump in with whatever you're feeling in the moment. Uh, no consequences uh, for negative posting, unless you're near a Tandon, of course. So, <laughs> oof, oof. <laughs> the most online woman recently, <laughs> which is saying something because I, I like I got nothing else to do, you know. Right. Yeah, and she's like, uh, she's like the, she's the head of like a major like think tank, and I guess that is like part of your job, right? Is to think out loud. Um, I don't know what think tanks actually do other than like you know deny Americans healthcare and stuff. So, um, but I'm sure it's something very awful. Uh, on top of that, <laughs> like I don't know what Center for American Progress actually does. Does that well? Do you all know. And yes, like you've worked at NGOs before. Like I haven't worked yeah. at like a research think tank before, or like a yeah. research NGO. But it's for, from what I can tell, it's like um, every now and then you release like a forty-five page PDF, and no mm -hmm. one's going to read it, and no one gives a shit. And uh, you know that's just that's just how liberals feel now. Like that's, that's the vibe. Like, that's the general kind of consensus for all NGO work, and you know, like. I, I love some of our uh, our kind of movement partners, our lib movement partners, but you know, a lot of times it's just it's it's the report, and then it's your it's your press release, and no one cares, and you move on and you do it again, rinse and repeat. It's real real good stuff, really changing things, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I've known so many people that were like chewed up by the NGO machine. And I'm always just like really amazed at how, you know, this is not something like it's, of course, it's like not a thing that a lot of liberals think of, right? Is like, oh, you work for a nonprofit. It must be so great. It must be, wow, you're like really enacting change. And it's like everyone I've talked to that works in NGOs is like, I fucking hate it here. <laughs> it's like, I'm not paid shit. Uh, everything sucks. My bosses are horrible. Like, yeah, it's a and, the, and yet people want like groups like DSA to be like NGOs for some reason. It's always really baffling when when I run into that kind of critique. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's super horrific, too, because it's like, you know, like a lot of NGOs will will 
propagate kind of the the martyrdom syndrome. You ever heard of that? Where it's like, because you're doing movement work, because you're you're like a field organizer for an organization, or you're like, you know, whatever, they 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 want you to work more for less. Right. Because you're doing good work, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Which right. Like, like it should be fulfilling. Yeah. And it's like a great way to obfuscate the fact that it's just corporate work that pays you half the amount, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. because like if you work for like a tech company or something, it's just like, well, you know, if you if you feel like working 60 hours this week, like I'm not going to stop you. But with NGOs, it's like if you feel like working 60 hours this week, think about all the orphans you could save, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so, that sounds incredibly toxic. Uh <laughs> It's good energy. Vibes are completely normal. <laughs> yeah, completely so normal and super high. <laughs> so we're on this NGO track. We're talking about Neera Tandon, probably the most famous person right now that posted her way out of a job. It's looking like she's still going through like the confirmation hearings or whatever, but it's not looking great so far. I don't. Okay, so just a refresher for the listeners on why Nira, because I'm sure people have heard her name before. Um, she comes up in a lot of conversations among leftists because she is pretty awful. But um, Nira Tandon is like one of the people that's responsible for propagating some of the dumbest liberal brain worms of the last four years. Um, she tweeted a lot about like Moscow Mitch. And last year she accused like Russia of helping Bernie's campaign and like just, Jesus. you know, just the normal uh, shit tier analysis we expect from a, a multimillionaire who's uh, in charge of a think tank. Right. But there's also so many other things, right? Um, she also outed a victim of sexual harassment in a uh, in a CAP staff meeting multiple times in the meeting. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then she also, in 2008, she shoved a reporter in the chest for asking her a question about Hillary Clinton's support of the war in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> she admitted to it, by the way. Someone was like, yeah, did you punch this guy? And she's like, I shoved him. Okay, there's a difference. <laughs> Legally, there is a difference. Legally, there's an open hand, an open hand shoved him. And then what was uh, what was yeah. the other thing she did, Yezzy? So oh, I, God. I threw in some stuff in here as well. I'm so sorry to cut in. Um, no, go. There's like, and if you go on Wikipedia, you can find this as well. But this is something that stood out to me because like in 2013, I was like a little baby liberal just getting super woke and stuff. And mm -hmm. um, she had this famous like an unpolice world is dangerous, like kind of quote. Um, like she's just got serious liberal cop brain. Um, she's seriously an interventionist. And like, I think it's, you just fucking hate to see it. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Like, um, she's got, you know, you love when to see like someone's got a foreign policy section on Wikipedia that's just like, yeah, let's just get on in there. Let's just mm. go. Right. I think she was one of the people, uh, I think she was the lady, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was saying like, um, Yemen should pay us back for like the war crimes done against them. I have to like incredible, look up that Incredible. Incredible. It was that something crazy just, like that. Here's that, the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing that's so wild to me is like the libs spent four years griping about the most online president we've ever had <laughs> losing his shit on the daily. Neera Tandon is like the centrist lib version of Trump. And yeah. like the fact that they're like foaming at the mouth to get her into the cabinet is just like, it's just like, where is the cognitive dissonance? Do you see it? Are you aware? Can you look in a mirror and see something there? She loves to post. She loves being online so much. She, she can't be stopped. So 
She actually delete like deleted over a thousand texts uh, or a, a thousand uh, tweets when she was going through her hearings when she started getting like heat for it, um, which I think is just so beautiful. But it's like, you know, where's the commitment, Nira? Like, come on. You know, if you're going to post posts, you like none of this deleting tweets stuff, you know, well, unless I, they were drunk tweets. That's OK. Um, I think like the real girl boss move would just be like, I stand by everything I've ever said forever. And actually, I'm never deleting these tweets, you know, like that's right, the actual right. corollary to like you the can't be canceled if you don't believe in it. You know, if you don't believe in cancel culture. So <laughs> I'm going to go with that. If I ever get canceled, I'm not actually canceled because I don't believe in that shit. So <laughs> just insane drill tweet. Like, you know, I'm not owned. It's you who are owned, actually. <laughs> yeah. I probably gain like a thousand followers just doing that. It's like, I don't like cancel culture. No, not me. Never. <laughs> but yeah, so so near Tandon, obviously awful. We've covered in the multiple ways she's awful. That doesn't even like scratch the surface of how awful she is. I think that's just some of the worst stuff um, in recent memory. But um, the Biden administration is, of course, doing their damnedest to get her confirmed for director of office management and budget, um, which Jesus. is great. It's great to see them really stand up for the things that matter. I think we were all just really worried about her not getting confirmed. Uh, Listen, <laughs> we, we got priorities. We got Mario Kart. We got Nira Tandon. We got some more <laughs> Mario Kart. Like, that's what it is right now. The office of budget and what? What was it again? It was office of management and budget, which I, I'm guessing Bernie is. Office. Yeah, it's like, I don't want a neoliberal in that fucking position. Like, like, I don't fucking want a, an austerity liberal in there. Like, hell Jesus. no. Um, but it's so great because the, because uh, Biden's administration is is doing their damnedest to get her confirmed. And also, like, tapping Asian American groups to, like, get this done, like, to support her, which, Anna, you and I have talked about. <laughs> the weaponization of AAPI identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely don't want to, like, run roughshod over, like what y'all might have to say, but um, I, I like, I read that article and I was like uh, in Politico, right? It's like mm -hmm. team Biden taps as am groups to help save Tandon because like, I guess she has Indian heritage and stuff like that. And um, as someone who's been sort of organizing in the progressive, you know, to leftist AAPI community for like years and years mm -hmm. and years. Um, and looking back on her history of like, you know, being pro intervention, um, just a generally pro war, like violence, blood, violence, favoring bloodthirsty lunatic. Um, it, it's not a good look, you know, if AAPI mm -hmm. communities decide to rally behind this lady as a sort of like, you know, this is our representation moment, you know, for the fucking office of budget, you know, sorry. Management the, and budget. So management and budget. OMB and like, what I've figure been. it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like. <laughs> The money think, job. The yeah, money yeah. job. The job where you're in charge of all the money. and where Yeah, the job where she's going to be like the drill candles tweet where it's like, I spent all my money on drone strikes. Help me budget. My country is dying, you know? Um, <laughs> like the API, like liberal to leftist, like I don't want to say community, but like sort of organizing trend tends to, I think, focus a lot on representation sometimes as opposed to maybe things that actually affect the AAPI community as a whole and also mm -hmm. our international neighbors, which is, you know, being anti-war. And yeah. to me, this lady is like intensively pro-war in a way that I think AAPI should be especially wary of. And so for her to tap those groups, I think could potentially reveal some like interesting weaknesses and in, like any kind of liberal to leftist like coalition building in the community. Yeah, that could be like potentially splitting for a lot of the people in those groups, too, because I, I don't work with a lot of these groups. So maybe you can provide some context. But I mm -hmm. like I feel like there's got to be some definitely like progressive slash leftist tendencies within those groups because there's not 
a ton of them in the US, right? Like there's not a ton of like advocacy groups that I know of that are like really high profile. So it, they must lump in like kind of a lot of people. Anna, you can correct me here if I'm wrong. No, yeah. they absolutely do. Like I think AAPI organizing covers like a huge net, right? And of course we have our own sort of reactionary community as well. Um, You see those folks organizing about like, oh, getting rid of affirmative action at Harvard. Like we don't have other shit going on. Um, <laughs> And so when you say API, obviously it covers like, what, 1.5 billion people, like a Asians, <laughs> right, covers 1.5 billion people. So it's kind of a wide net to cast and people still have difficulty, like, um, sort of recognizing priorities, right? Um, because I feel as though when you fight against white supremacy, um, the sort of framework, the logistical and rhetorical framework of anti-blackness is really helpful um, mm -hmm. for racial justice organizing. But AAPIs are always asking themselves, like, well, where do we fit into that? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. which leads to like really dumb conversations like, um, what was it? Crazy Rich Asians are Black Panther and shit like that. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, no. what? You guys were on mind for that moment? Like, oh, my. <laughs> Why not? Wow. I don't understand incredible. why you would go for Moana. It's right there. No, no. Yeah. Like, let's let's unpack that. That's incredible. Yeah. Crazy Rich Asians is our Black Panther. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, I think you can also see this, and um, this is just me being, like, a mean leftist Asian right now, but, like, there was definitely, like, a huge Asian-American coalition behind, like, the Elizabeth Warren campaign a couple years ago, mm -hmm. right? Um, so obviously, like the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, like runs the gamut in terms of political views. But like what they fail to realize is that like, I don't know, like historically, you can look back on Asian Americanism, like conceptually, even as having come from like the civil rights movements in like the 60s. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and these are things that just developed in the wake of like black organizing in that era. The development of racial racially based organizing was founded on this recognition of white supremacy as the enemy, not like, you know, other minorities, not like, you know, just not things that liberals these days would have you believe are the usual suspects. So for the focus to be on representation in media, in government, etc., like I think is kind of, um, you know, missing the forest for the trees. Like that's the gentle mm -hmm. way to put it. Um, to rally behind Neera Tannen at this moment when actually like the one thing that unites all Asian Americans is like this difficult relationship with imperialism and like mm -hmm. Western imperialism and this relationship with whiteness. I think that really uh, kind of, it's like a terrible like wedge, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's also interesting in like in the contemporary sense, like lumping in, you know, uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders is also like very difficult to kind of coalesce around similar goals because our diaspora of people that identify as AAPI in this country is so huge. And mm -hmm. even within that region, it's like, you know, I'm from Guam, you know, so, so me being from Guam, I don't necessarily have a ton in common with regional politics as I do with someone that's like Chinese American or Japanese American or Filipino, you know? So it's like, it's, it's really weird to like be lumped in this huge group. And I feel like sometimes it's a region, it's because of it's a regional thing, but also because we, we are like, you know, we're the, a minority within minority sometimes. So it, it's really difficult because if I were to go and start a um, Chamorro diaspora group that advocated for Chamorro rights in our mm -hmm. government, I would be having to deal with people all over the U.S. that also have their own regional concerns and whatever little 
pocket communities they've formed in the different states, right? So it's like, it's hard to, um, it's hard to coalesce around like a single like issue like that. You know, this country is so freaking vast and we're all so freaking different. Anyway, that's my very um, uh, surface level analysis of that. So <laughs> No, it's it's not just surface level. Like, I think that actually gets to the heart of like the big thing behind like the Asian American identity. Right. Like even mm -hmm. the fact that like API organizing is bad at pulling in like people from Guam, like the PI mm -hmm. section of that, like literally the only thing all these folks have in common, like the only thing I as a Filipino American have in common with, like, for example, an Indian American, like the core thing is that complicated relationship with American imperialism, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And to fail to like sort of coalesce behind that, like I think is a failure to recognize power, like our power. Absolutely. Um, I have a question since we're talking about this, um, circling back to kind of the Nira Tandon thing, have any uh, prominent AAPI orgs like said anything about it, like push back? I mean, cause like right now, especially I think with, you know, attacks on, on Asian American elders and, and things like that, there's a lot of like space and attention, you know, to the politics of the community. And so I'm wondering, like, has anyone sort of either pushed back on that at all or like tried to address some of this? Like, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Um, for my end, nothing much, unfortunately. Like as mm -hmm. I think Rawa mentioned earlier, like AAPI organizing groups, like not only do they run the gamut in terms of size and structure and priorities, sure. um, I think there, for the most part, what I've seen is like the NGO sphere of the Asian American organizing community is focused on like that violence against elders piece, which, you know, has been has been good on a kind of local level, right? You see like a mm -hmm. lot of community movement building in Los Angeles and in California, et cetera, where these attacks are taking place. Um, but I think like in the NGO world uh, and elsewhere, like critiques of like pro-war Asians who e exist in the public sphere is pretty yeah. slim. And I'd be happy to be wrong about that. But like, I think like you reach a certain point of like being in career government work where you're just like, oh, better like maybe toe the line and yeah. you know, not be able to point out how fucked up that is. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta get paid. You need a paycheck, you know. <laughs> Just trying uh, to keep their health insurance, like the rest of us. Am I right? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I just almost dissociated. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> that's how things are going on my end. <laughs> I don't even have health insurance like tied to my employment, but I'm just like, oh god, I don't have health insurance. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They're just like trying to keep their heads above water, like the rest of us. Oh, so you yeah. know. <laughs> I'm just yeah, like, I feel it. I feel yeah. it deeply, deeply. Yeah, this nearest hand thing is just like, of course, liberals focusing on all the wrong shit. Like, it's just, it's incredibly annoying at this point, these arguments. I'm just so sick of hearing the liberal arguments about, you just don't want a strong uh, Southeast Asian woman in office. We get it. You're just misogynists. And it's like, I'm just really so sick of it. <laughs> you just don't want a girl yes. boss to step on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, you don't like a confident woman who is opinionated and it's it's just it's like, so, yes, that's definitely it. Yeah, that's definitely it. We just hate women. That's all of us. We just all hate women. It's always misogyny every time you don't get what you want. We're just <laughs> going with that from now on. But yeah, but I love that um, Bernie had like a moment with her where he was like, well, you've been a real asshole to me. And she had to say sorry on yes! multiple times. She was like, I'm really sorry about that, by the way, uh, moving on. And he was like, actually, no, we're not moving on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, actually, I have more to say about this. Um, that's I'm, a I'm no 
incredible. Uh, please. I'm going to insert a little audio clip there of Bernie chewing her out because uh, it was great. <laughs> but uh, of course, she has her own like allies in all this. Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, you know. How is Cory Booker still relevant? <laughs> Uh, as long as he's dating Rosario Dawson, he will have to be. Uh, I think as soon as that's all done with, uh, we can forget about him forever. Amy Klobuchar really like coming to stand behind other people who love throwing stuff at other people. And, like, boss. Yeah. people <laughs> like girl boss shit, you know? Abusive that's girl boss caucus. <laughs> I'm joining my girl boss local. <laughs> girl boss teamsters. <laughs> God, it might as well be a freaking union for abusive bosses and like all throughout DC. <laughs> like that, that's like the unspoken uh union, right? But anyway, yeah. so yeah, so I don't know. The chances of her getting confirmed are not looking good right now. And of course, we're all just eating this up by the spoonful because it's a nice healthy dose of uh fucking karma for her. But mm -hmm. uh we'll we'll keep an eye on that situation. But yeah, just a little refresher for what's going what what our uh government priorities are right now. Now let's look at some cultural priorities. Really, really uh, important news coming out of Hasbro now. Mr. Potato Head is no longer a mister. We did it, folks. We won the we gender wars. We did it. We did it. Um, let's all just pretend that's what we wanted all along. Uh <laughs> Hashtag I'm with them. <laughs> So it's mixed potato head now. That's where, which is like a missed opportunity, right? Because that should that really should have been what it was. I would like to go around the, the room and get everyone's opinions on our genderless potato head, which should have always been genderless because that's weird. Because it's a potato? Because it's, it's a potato. potato that does not have a gender? You know, here's the thing. Like as a, you know, trans non-binary person, the thing about these like open displays, and again, it goes back to what Anna was saying, like, like this representation over actual material gain, like this is not progress. This is not, this is not a win. This is just, it's not even pandering. It's, it's looking for creating a newsworthy moment. And, and I think I saw that Hasbro released a second statement that was like, no, 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 everybody chill. They're still going to be labeled Mr. And Mrs. Just the logo is potato head now. So the box logo It'll just say potato head at the bottom of the box. It'll say Mr. and Mrs. Like, wow, I did not read this story at all because I did not realize that. <laughs> I think it came out. That is so fucking funny. Out. I think it just came out. So it's like, everybody chill. It's just we're, we're rebranding as potato head, not like Mr. Potato Head, Mrs. Potato Head. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, my God. So it's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? I am exhausted. They couldn't even commit. They couldn't even commit to the bit. It's bullshit. Like, well, I, for one, am just really disappointed in Hasbro because now I have to go back and edit all of my explicit potato head fan fiction and just revise my <laughs> pronouns and genitalia mentions in those stories. Um, so thanks a lot, Hasbro, for putting me to work once again in the content factories. But yeah, no, like I think, uh, you know, now that you've added that additional detail, Yessie, like it, it sounds like a whole lot of nothing. And it like, it's just so, it's just so damn silly. Like there's just a lot of silliness to unpack here. Um, yeah. brands and LGBT stuff lately. Like, you know, um, I just remember queer like, baiting. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. <sighs> I think there's a lot to unpack with LGBT. Like you saw the Oreo tweet, right? Like Oreo yeah. yesterday was like uh, trans, trans people, trans people exist. exist. It's like, <laughs> 
Damn. Yeah. Thank you, Oreo. I just want them I all feel- to shut up. I just want them was to shut the fuck up. Like- before Oreo made that tweet, and now <laughs> I exist. <laughs> it's incredible. Thank you. And yeah, it's like, yes, he said, like, brands getting involved, like, feeds into, like, this idea of, like, oh, there's a culture war happening. And it's like, I mean, yeah, I guess. But there's also, like, people starving and countries being bombed, I guess. Like, it's sort of a this is all like a really fun distraction from like material conditions type stuff. And like, Mm. you know, the worst part is like any critique of this from like the queer left, like always like gets painted as like, Oh, the left isn't satisfied with their, you know, extremely gender neutral and fuckable potato. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's just, it's just an L all around. (laughs) I, I just hate this performative bullshit from brands Mm. that has been completely normalized by Twitter. I fucking hate it so much. Because it doesn't mean anything. It's so cynical because it's a marketing strategy for the most part, right? And they've realized that, oh, trans people have money. Uh, Mm -hmm. Woke people Mm -hmm. have money. So we got to capture that because otherwise we're missing out on a market. Yeah, that. And it doesn't even result in like real action, right? Like Nabisco isn't about to come out here and donate to like, you know, the trans law center or whatever. Like Or hire trans people, you know, which is what I asked. I tweeted at them. I was like, how many trans people work at your company? Nobody got back to me, of course. But, you know, it's like shit like that. And then it's like, of course, you know, there's like abysmal conditions in their factories as well. You know, like people like there is this article the hands of factory workers and the packaging department were covered with scars, cuts, and peeling skin from the constant friction of packing boxes without gloves. Jesus. So it's like, it's yeah, <laughs> but at least at least the packaging is gender neutral. But okay, again, it's not even. So it's like, what the fuck was the point of this? Yeah, it's completely it's completely useless. And it's like the thing that we need to realize is that without material impact without a political framework to advance a a line or 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 a point of culture or advance a, a politic for a people anything that you do ends up getting subsumed by the superstructure it's you know that's that's Althusser right there like that's culture is just what we try to move regurgitated back at us as an opportunity to affirm the state or like the you know the hegemony right and so it's just like Fuck, like, I'm tired of representation. I want power. I want mm-hmm. real power. Fuck yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, I think we're all on the same page where we're, we're just, we have been continually hit over the head with liberal representation politics mm-hmm. and just, and seeing like any, any kind of success for individual marginalized people as like this great success for everybody as a whole. And it's like, we already know, like too many people already know that that is not the case. I mm. mean, you can just look at look at any one of anybody's lived reality right now or anyone's lived experience right now and realize like that's, it doesn't do anything except for that one particular individual. And it's almost like a trick. Like it's it's almost like an expectation of like trickle down progress. Right. It's like, oh, well, this one trans person is up here and now they can help other trans people. Or it's like now people will be more willing to, um, you know, to have other trans people in their companies or, you know, um, the faces of their companies or whatever. And we just know that that's not true because it also, you know, because of white supremacy, we also see that a lot of the trans representation in popular culture is, you know, uh, typically like skinny and Mm -hmm. like, you know, adhering to European beauty standards. Mm -hmm. So it's really like a very narrow definition of, uh, of like trans people that are actually like accepted in the upper echelons of power, if they even get actual power to begin with. Totally. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like, um, I saw on Twitter, like there's this user, um, I think it's like at, um, at Lubchansky that said the U S is moving towards like the sort of gender critical moment, like what the shit fest that's happening over in the UK. Are you guys aware of that? I'm sure you are, but like, Woo, yeah. uh, all I know is UK is where turfs were invented. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> like you know, J.K. Rowling wrote a best-selling book about turf uh, wizards, and now it's just how it is over there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And they opened like a turf theme park. It was just fucked up. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very problematically went to our turf theme park in Florida a couple of times. Got some turf beers, some turf snacks. <laughs> I got on the turf train and it went to the other side of Universal Studios. It was fucked up. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, like, and you know, I think you can kind of see it like we're, Rara and I are based in Georgia and like, um, we've got, you know, hometown hero, MTG, baby. And, you know, she's hitting the news lately, putting up that science, like there are two genders, like outside of her office or whatever the fuck. And like, right. I'm worried that like, you know, the more brands lean into like this culture war shit, you know, uh, the more that, you know, reactionaries like completely fundamentally unserious people in power are going to say, yes, there is a culture war going on. Let me use this as a sort of bait while I continue to take away um, your rights and um, help mm -hmm. material conditions deteriorate for people on the ground. Right. And of course, the only counter we have to this in the mainstream is the conservative arguments against, you know, any kind of recognition of trans people as people. Um, mm -hmm. Like you said, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Every time I hear MTG, I think Magic the Gathering because I'm same. a fucking nerd. <laughs> also um, and I grew up playing Magic the Gathering. So I'm like, oh, Magic the Gathering is doing something weird again. And I'm like, what the fuck? But anyway, yeah. So, <laughs> so the only, so we have like, uh, the major representations happening in pop culture right now are this this hyper woke uh, branding uh, that's happening um, that is like a virtue signal for people to buy that. Uh, like I bought Oreos. I'm supporting trans people somehow. Um, and then the totally opposite end of that spectrum, which is, you know, Republicans saying that trans people are predators or not real or whatever, what have you. Right. So there's nothing really like there is no real like material analysis like in the pop culture framework uh, right now for like what's actually happening with trans with everyday trans people. So, I mean, I don't know. How do we like how do we address this as, you know, as anti-capitalists? Like, how do we like how do we like show up for our trans friends and, uh, and ourselves and, uh, and uh, kind of demand more? Like what, what are your opinions on, on where we should kind of have some movement around this? Anna, what do you think? So for me, like, I think the shallowest part of all this sort of brand recognition of LGBT issues and particularly like trans violence and stuff like that is that they always just got like a fucking tweet, right? Or they got like a shoe and maybe like 5% of that shoes profits goes to, you know, uh, and, I don't know, the human rights campaign or whatever. Um, sure. The reality is, yeah, right. Um, which, you know, as we all know, is a bulwark for trans thing. rights. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing great work out there. Just want just to plug like this little known organization. <laughs> but, um, uh, unfortunately, like capitalists are never going to be like any kind of vanguard force for like protecting like the queer left in any way. But at the same time, like what can be done is always to me like improvement of material conditions, right? Mm, right. For me, like 
if even like big old brands came out in favor of like Equality Acts, came out in favor of, and like donated substantive money to organizations that are fighting like legislation that's cropping up all over the country that's mm-hmm. trying to put a limit on like trans people existing in public spaces, like put your money where your mouth is, you know? Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's like the one and only thing like corporations can do is just spend some of that capital, baby. Because otherwise they're like, you know, they're just out here making some ugly ass converses and I'm just not about it. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Anna. And I think the other thing, too, that's really important is that while like as a trans person and organizing in queer communities, like we need to look very clearly at where our communities are impacted the most. Right. And housing in access to resources in uh healthcare, carceral punishment and carceral politics, um, all of that. So I think another way to organize and to to gain those uh, material uh, changes is through is through focusing on those issues as well as as trans folks, as queer folks, making sure that we are abolitionists, making sure that we are fighting for housing rights and building tenants unions and and fighting for health care. Those are the things that are going to improve the quality of life for for our communities. Right. Absolutely. Right. And then on the personal level, just, you know, showing up for our trans friends and, Mm. you know, being a source of like emotional support and possibly material support. If you can swing it, calling shit out when you see it, when you see some shit happening right in front of you, I think is really important. Just kind of setting a standard of you're going to treat this person as a person um, Mm -hmm. and you're and especially if you're around me (laughs) because like I think that is I think that is like so important on the personal level is just to know that people literally have your back in social situations and creating safe places for our comrades um, to organize and just to exist right Mm. yeah yeah absolutely and I want to put forward as well like I think Georgia um, Atlanta in particular has like such a thriving like black trans activist space, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, to be able to sort of recognize that, um, and like, it sounds like some rising tide lifts all boats logic, but yeah, if you like support and like liberate and empower like the most marginalized people, um, things, everything else for like people who are otherwise marginalized can be soon to follow. And so to put your material support and like your substantive support behind, um, trans activists of color in your area like will go far much farther than like buying a fucking pair of sneakers ever will for them yeah totally or liking a tweet by a company that doesn't give a fuck <laughs> exactly yeah wow we got some we got some uh some deep stuff out of the potato head bit uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> Just, just goes to show you, you can take like, you can take any leftist and any topic and just like connect it to some amazing shit, right? Like, <laughs> I, love, I love that for us. I love us. <laughs> so I got, I, I hate talking about Twitter too much um, on the but podcast. it's where we all live. But it's where we all live. It, and it's where we all rage out and get like are gleeful about uh, Nira Tan getting canceled. And, uh, <laughs> but it's also, it's also free with a caveat now, uh, because Twitter has just announced a new subscription model that they'll be rolling out sometime in the future. They have not stated when, but basically they're moving to like a, a subscription model that includes like tiered accounts. Uh, so you can see like tiered tweets by accounts uh, that you follow. Apparently you can like super like tweet or super follows. And it, there's this just this whole thing that's basically trying to turn Twitter into OnlyFans. Uh, well, Twitter was already, it was already too sexy for me. It so was, like. it was already, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There, I feel like there's, 
people are being very uh, skeptical about this, but I think it could generate some pretty good competition with OnlyFans, which is basically one of the worst platforms I've ever had to use. It is like probably the most trash customer service I've ever had to deal with. Payouts missing all the time. And I'm not the Uh only sex worker that has experienced this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, your account getting shut down and your money just being trapped in the ether. So I think this model might be a good thing for sex workers because it will kind of reinvigorate the platform for us and make it usable again. Because, you know, I'm sick of getting shadow banned on my sex work account. I'm sure other people are. But yeah, but it's also like, I don't know if I would even try to charge anyone for Twitter. It seems fucked up. <laughs> it, it seems, seems fucked up. Really weird. I I like like the idea, the framing of like, hey, here's a accessible al- like alternative to OnlyFans mm-hmm. that we all already use, and a bunch of people are on there. But but I also know that Twitter is such a toilet that <laughs> I worry about people coming into the toilet and getting shit on them. <laughs> Plus, there's already like community, like, okay, so there's already Facebook groups because there's because they're starting this other thing called communities, which is just basically Facebook groups. I just don't understand what like what the motivation would be for people to like subscribe to something that wasn't nudes, like or wasn't porn. Like, because yeah. I'm not paying for recipes. I'm not paying Mm-mm. for cat pics. I'm not paying i'm not paying for jokes for like i'll I'll follow people's patreon if i want to support their their shit right um i'm definitely not paying for like pictures of other people like what who is this for really and like the only thing i can think of is like literally sex workers or like you Mm know um llc twitter uh to sell some like bullshit like mlm thing well, I, I feel like we're getting a real sense of like directionlessness from Twitter, right? Like between like the the fleets and like, you know, communities and, you know, now a pay uh, pay to play model for some features. Like, I don't know. I, do you, like, does anyone get the sense that Twitter's kind of lost the plot a little bit? Like they're just like, uh, I don't know. Investors want a new idea. Let's uh, throw on this feature. Here you go. Right. Yeah. I think that they are going the way of Facebook because mm. Facebook was... Facebook, I mean, I don't know if you've logged into Facebook on a desktop lately. I really try to avoid it. But it's chaos. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, it, it is like stimulus over like overhaul. I can't even like navigate groups anymore. Like there's so many, there's marketplace, there's groups, there's games, there's um, there's people's pages, which for some reason people still think that their Facebook pages are gen- generating like business or something. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I don't know, maybe because I'm a performer, so it's a little bit different for me, but um, like people are still inviting me to their comedy pages and I'm just like, <sighs> I don't understand, like, I I feel like a fucking boomer when I log on. And then I remember that this is actually where the boomers are. So it doesn't make any sense that I would be lost um, because I'm a fully functioning, like, millennial. I think they're going the way of Facebook and Instagram, which is bad because obviously we've seen what too many features does to a motherfucker. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Community, right? Uh, So they're completely like ruining the simplicity of the platform, which is why we were all kind of attracted to it in the first place. Totally. And the other thing that's like really stressful about this is that, uh, or maybe not stressful, but like kind of, awful is just that the rollout for fleets was 
riddled with uh, bugs. It was so bad. So you can imagine this new service or whatever, this new subscription feature is going to be a hot mess for a good while. Oh, I can. What is the point? The fine introducing an entirely new like financial aspect to everyone like available mm -hmm. for everyone. It also is like, is going to be rife with people abusing it and people yep. posting stuff that they shouldn't because I mean, Twitter already has a problem with underage people like posting, you know, like Twitter has a problem with child porn already um, mm -hmm. as do most fucking social media websites. Um, and they have never really fully addressed a way to successfully like get rid of all the crazy, disgusting and illegal shit that's on their website. So mm -hmm. I don't understand how introducing this like financial aspect, I don't know, it's not being rolled out yet. So maybe they are taking the time to figure this out i just i yeah, don't but think it's that's like the case though <laughs> yeah they don't have a handle on any kind of content moderation whatsoever so it's like and now you're gonna let people you know sort of monetize that it's gonna break bad real fast i feel um especially with the communities feature because it's like oh you know who's gonna use this nazis like yeah, <laughs> absolutely white supremacists yeah. parlor's gone they're gonna come back in droves yeah i i feel like the, everyone's trying to compete with TikTok in all the wrong ways. Yeah, and I feel as though, like, you know, at the core of it, what people really want from Twitter is just a place to fucking shoot the shit or whatever mm -hmm. um, and see their fucking tweets in order and stuff like that. And, like, we've already lost the ability to see our tweets in order, like, 10,000 years ago, right? Like, <laughs> If they so, just brought that back, I would literally pay, like, $3 a month if they brought I, that feature back. I would subscribe to Twitter's uh, Patreon or OnlyFans, right? <laughs> like, I... Yeah, like, but I think that really shows that, like, you know, I think, and I'm bringing this back to, like, capitalism, uh, just because I've got a real bug up my ass about it. But it's like, you know, capitalism promising you this product, and it's going to do the thing it does really good. And Twitter does not do the thing it does really good. And actually, a lot of things right now aren't doing the things they do really good. And we're starting to see the consolidation of that ethos in, like, tech platforms, right? Mm -hmm. um, where it's just like, here's a service, but it's not great, but it's what you've got. But also their priorities are going to be like investors who say, hey, I need a little bump in my spreadsheet. Like, can you introduce a new shitty feature right now? <laughs> you know, I thought Not the voice fleet, the, the voice tweet feature was a great idea. Mm -hmm. And somehow, like, I don't I know like five people that got it. And I'm so fucking insanely jealous because I'm the laziest person ever. And I would just love to just like sh talk shit into my phone and then press post. Um, <laughs> I think that that's great, especially for, you know, especially for blind users. Like, yeah. I, I just think of like the accessibility around that and how that could have been a major thing. And instead, they just limited it to certain accounts for some reason. And they like wear this hat that's like, you know, social media is like a democratizing force, right? But if that were true, the focuses would be on like accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Instead of finding new ways to, I don't know, make a buck off of like some rando. I have this really like horrible feeling that in like five years, everything is going to look like everything else. There will be kind of just this flattening of social media um, on all the major platforms because, you know, obviously people have seen the success. Like when uh, Facebook bought out Instagram, 
Um, now we have like Instagram's basically just Facebook marketplace and there's not really a, a path to success for like small creators or small businesses through Instagram anymore because they eliminated that. So a lot of people are moving to TikTok. It doesn't seem like TikTok is making those same mistakes now. They're, they're kind of just like writing the success of their format um, and their interface, which is great. I love TikTok. I hope, I don't, I really hope they don't change anything um, because, but like it is scary because it's like the internet is a haven for a lot of people you know like and, and especially now it's like the best way to connect as just people that are interested in like our little things um and now it's just turning into this flattened experience where everything looks exactly the same and i'm logging onto three different platforms to look at the same shit or to have like the same shitty ad shown to me a thousand times <laughs> for like sunglasses i'm never gonna buy when do we get the things we want from capitalism yeah like, i mean never never, never. absolutely never <laughs> like we're seeing like a collapse of aesthetic also like in real time right like totally. remember when i live in atlanta like you see all these like you know sort of weird architecturally strange looking new houses come up and like we're yeah, seeing the, the mixed facade houses mm -hmm. they're so weird <laughs> So fucking weird. And like, just like, like, we're seeing like this sort of late game capitalism situation where like aesthetics are flattening, services are flattening, mm -hmm. material conditions aren't improving. So like, what is, who is benefiting here other than like maybe 15 people who all went to Davos or some shit? I don't know. <laughs> but that's like exactly the point of capitalism, right? It's insatiable. So it's always going to try and turn a, a higher profit, increase those margins. And so you're right. Both of you are right. We're getting a whole lot of the same mush and it's all kind of shitty because of the drive for profit. Capitalism mm -hmm. is an insustainable system. It'll never stop until it destroys everything. And so that's why that's why we say, you know, socialism or barbarism, we choose socialism, right? Yes. And I just want to remind everyone if we nationalize Twitter, like okay, I just I just imagine what social media could be like in a socialist government. And obviously there's people that have better co like coherent arguments against that for very like uh, valid reasons. What it, okay, imagine you log on to Twitter, you see your timeline in the order that the tweets are made. Damn. There are no advertisements. There are no Damn, Nazis. Fun. There are no white supremacists. It's just you hanging out with your with your buds. Uh, everyone's talking about how great it is that they went to the doctor last week. You know, <laughs> I just want people to think bigger. You know, I just want you to think like, this is like, this shit sucks and it could be better. Like, that's the whole thing about being fucking anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. This shit sucks and it will be better if we did this. Anyway. I'm gonna. I'm getting in my feelings about Twitter. What the fuck? Let me get in my feelings about something that matters. This week, uh, Georgia H House representatives have passed a bullshit police budget bill. Um, if it passes in the Senate, the bill will limit cuts to police and city budgets by more than five percent. Oh God, some fucking shit. <sighs> Remember how we all were in the streets last summer, risking our fucking lives with COVID and with these crazy ass police. To say, like, enough is enough. Well, all of our elected re representatives got together and said, fuck you. Also, you can't do anything to fix it. So this is, so I'm, I'm, I'm overstating this because um, it, it passed one, 101 to 69. Nice. But, and it was authored by an Athens Republican uh, state rep, Houston Gaines. And it was pretty much split along party lines. So 101 people voted for it and 69 uh, people, all Democrats, I think, voted no. 
Well, I'm, like, I think it's so funny, like, because defund the police was like sort of the slightly softer language, right? Because a bunch of abolitionists mm-hmm. everywhere were already just like, just fucking get rid of it, abolish the police and defund the police was like, okay, we, you want it in policy terms, we're putting it in policy terms. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, policy turns right around and says, fuck off. Right. It's like, you can defund us, but not by more than 5%, which is like nothing, of course. And it's, I think it's like 5% over like 10 years or something like that. Um, <laughs> I was trying to read it, but I was like, literally, I was seeing, I was seeing it's red a- when I was reading it. I was like, I'm, I've, I've got the kill bill sound coming in. <laughs> it's like, it's the equivalent of being like, okay, with this bill, you can go up to a police officer and reach for their wallet and take one $5 bill out <laughs> once a year. And that's how you defund the police, baby. <laughs> no, they're just gonna all like funnel it into like a purge day. Uh- <laughs> God, this is brutal. Well, like I think like anti-protest legislation is so fucking interesting, right? Because like. I mean, obviously, like, you know, you've got people out here like, oh, this is a violation of like First Amendment stuff. You do have the right to assembly. But like, this is just a continuation of things we've been seeing over the past, like many decades where, you know, you need a protest. To, uh, you need a permit to protest. Right. And for the most part. And you can um, protest within these little, little, uh, you get designated areas. These, this is your protest area. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, we've made you a little box with duct tape, you know? I mean, anti protest legislation is just like in itself, like a very funny phrase to me because it is so obviously just like, um, to me, like it speaks to like the desired immediacy with which the state wants to get rid of like visible, um, malcontent, right? Mm-hmm. They're just like, all right, the second I see someone, acting out of line in a way that, you know, obviates dissent, like that person needs to be in jail ASAP because it's just a way of like putting more veneers over the fact that things are fucked up and things are not fine. Um, And it's just a way to like sort of justify more violence against those who would kind of speak out against that. I think it also does like a psychological sort of lifting as well um, because it, it makes folks forget their legitimate material power and how that exists outside the state, right? Like, because if you have to like comply with all of these different rules and regulations to, to protest, which is an, which is a form of direct action, which direct action in it of itself inherently exists outside of the state, then, then you start to lose sight of what your material power could be. I think this summer we saw people like being reminded or realizing, especially a lot of young people like teenagers you know realizing like hey a lot of us have a lot of power if we just you know say fuck it and 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 move to the streets you know it it, it it's twofold right this, this shitty legislation is is twofold it does it does a material impact in the sense that that you're right it limits how people can move but it also does a psychological thing where it reframes power as like uh, following the rules versus like taking it so I was reading this article about it and the guy, Houston Gaines, he was saying, uh, when a victim calls 911, we need quick response times. Defunding the police is a radical idea that will slow response times for victims and put our families and communities at risk. So I looked it up. <laughs> so I did some sleuthing in that I Googled it. I was looking up, I was like, what is our response time for cops? If they're so worried about it slowing down, what is it right now? Well, I found out that 911 already, like in Atlanta, it already diverts emergency medical calls to the nearest hospital, which is great, which is great. Even so, their average response time is 9.5 
minutes. That's their average, which I thought was pretty fast. I like, I don't know if they're like fudging that or something. It seems like fast to me um, compared to like, based on, this is anecdotal, of course, but based on every time someone I know has had to interact with the cops or whatever, or someone has actually like had to call, like people I know that have had to call the cops for whatever reason, they were always like, yeah, um, the cops weren't there for like 30 or 40 minutes. I had to call twice, like that kind of shit. And I've heard that those kinds of stories uh, happening like a lot. And I've also heard stories of people having medical emergencies and not getting anything like for like sometimes hours. Obviously, I feel like there's numbers being fudged here. But at the same time, it's like, okay, if the average response time for a cop car to get to you is 9.5 minutes. In Atlanta, there are patrol cars everywhere. In every neighborhood I go to, there are so many patrol cars. Mm -hmm. And if that's still the response time, why the fuck should we continue rewarding this kind of inefficiency? If our streets are already like there's a cop every like half a square mile and yet they're still taking 9.5 minutes. That's literally your job as a patrolman is to respond to calls. And it takes you 9.5 minutes and you're in the vicinity. Why do we need this? If it's this inefficient, like, why don't we spend more money on setting up like emergency temporary hospital, like basically like emergency centers, like strategically located um, so that we can respond to actual medical emergencies quicker? Mm -hmm. Um, Why can't we like, like, why can't we have more mental health services on call? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't, why does it have to be police? This is like something I talked about with, with Kat from uh, Defund APD, Refund Communities, Um, which is a DSA uh, campaign to defund uh, APD. Mm -hmm. Um, But we talked about like, you know, what it would mean to take some of this money and actually put it into services that would help people it it, like in the moment, um, instead of just having a fucking guy with a gun show up and fuck everything up. So it's just like baffling to me. Like this is like purely feeding into like the suburban fear of violence right or like street violence and suburb like this white suburban fear of other like of your neighbor or you know of others of outsiders right i think something that you brought up like as regards rewarding inefficiency like i think it really begs the question of like what was the last time a cop ever actually fucking did anything other than shoot a guy like okay i'm gonna tell like a really brief story i don't want to derail too hard but like when i was in college like one of my research assistant jobs was riding around in the back of a police car like i wasn't a criminal justice major they just let me do this for like $12 an hour. (laughs) And like, they made me sign a waiver that was like, if you get got like, that's on you, buddy. That was like South Fulton PD (laughs) shout out. And like, I had to do like surveys on like a little Kindle tablet. And like, I would hang out in the back of a cop car for like 10 to 12 fucking hours. Um, you know, and I'm like, I'm five feet tall. Like this is a primarily audio medium, but I, I look like a middle schooler. So people, we would be rolling on up to people's like domestic abuse calls, da 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 da. And like, what do cops do in that situation? They just kind of shrug at you, right? Like, like that's anecdotal, but statistically, when was the last time a cop solved a mystery? You show up after the crime usually. If you, if you're talking about like like burglary or if someone snatches your purse and you call the cop, well, that person's already gone. They haven't prevented any crime. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you know, what would prevent crime is infrastructure. That person, is that person Resources. having enough money where they didn't feel they had to snatch somebody's purse? Because obviously, somebody who does that, it's not that they're necessarily like just a shitty person is that their conditions have pushed them into these like reckless violent acts because there's no other alternatives than stealing some poor lady's purse off the street right and like people just don't even do that anymore like stealing someone's purse is a lot of work like i don't know if anyone's tried it recently i i certainly have not like let's put that out there (laughs) local guy have guns like atlanteans we have 
we have guns. So you wouldn't just go up to a random old white lady because that lady's probably strapped, right? So we don't yeah. do that. We, that skim, thing, we skim credit cards. We Like all know. the things that you think cops should be for, those things just don't fucking happen right now. Like people have realized that like going to jail for stealing a purse is not fucking worth it. You know, but that's, no, like, yeah. that's like part of the narrative they've built, right? From all of law enforcement in this country, from the top, like I'm saying, like, I'm including like ICE and CBP in this because uh, CBP is the largest federal law enforcement agency in this country, like straight up from the top to the bottom. They have profited off of these narratives of security and creating culture of fear. Their associations perpetuate this messaging left and right that they're protectors. But really what the data shows, what the actual data shows is not only like at best they're negligent and lazy. At worst, they're willfully obstructing justice because they were the ones that committed malfeasance. The fucking data is out there that shows this. And it's just like, it's, it's just such a grift. Like a huge grift. G-R-I-F-T grift. We got to be done. We got to abolish this shit. You know, the defund, defund the police was the compromise position. They like, mm-hmm. again, like mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. like liberals were like, you guys got to like have some different branding or whatever. And we were like, fine, defund the police. And they were like, oh no, that's still pretty harsh. You guys like, let's just dial it back way back what um, about their fucking pensions like they're the only fucking institution left with pensions or whatever like fuck right fuck right your pension yeah so it's and like of course these police unions are so fucking powerful that that, that will never ever get touched the, with the way things are now but anyway, before we before I get my blood pressure up too high. So yeah, so we're going to keep an eye on that. Um I think actually next week we'll have to schedule something uh, again with um with a member of Dark so we can talk more in depth about what we can do to um to bully the Senate to not pass this bill because it it will literally eliminate any ability on a local level to address defunding efforts in Georgia. It's like really important that we stay on top of it. If you live in Georgia, this has been a pretty Georgia centric episode so far. If you live in Georgia, please pay attention to that. Please call your reps, use your Mm. leverage. Like we all have to be like way meaner to not just Republicans, but Democrats. So um, also it's really, it's really fun leaving a, like a mean voicemail to to your, it absolutely is. <laughs> it's very cathartic. So you can like leave like a polite one or you can leave like a really mean one. Either way, like that's a you, you, that just let, it works both ways, right? Like even for like soft libs who are just starting to think, yo, this is really fucked up. You can leave a message like, hey, can you please not do that? But it's also really fun to just go, hey, idiot. Like, what the hell are you doing? I li- I feel like I leave like voicemails for um, David Perdue a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, hey, asshole, uh, what's up? It's raw, raw. Um, <laughs> So yeah, if you're just looking to like blow off some steam, call your senators. Now we move on to our main topic for today, um, which was uh, something that happened. What was it? Yesterday or the day before? It was yesterday, right? Um, We airstriked the shit out of Syria. Let's talk about it. What are we on for Biden? Day four, day 30, day 40? Where are we? It's 30 something. Definitely first 100 days and this aspiring already war criminal wants to like get ahead of the game. It's just more business as usual from the US like which. Mm. Ooh. 
I know we're all like kind of exasperated by this because I'm sure like the last 24 hours have been just as stressful for y'all because I'm just so sick of repeating this shit every year. Every year as socialists and communists, we have to fucking be like, can we not have another war, please? Like, can we... Just not do this shit. Like, do we have to go out in the streets again and fucking protest this shit all over again? Yeah, it just strikes us as more justification for, like, spending federal dollars and, like, people's dollars on continued warfare rather than the welfare of Americans at home. Um, And, you know, and I think, like, you can take, like, I'm not... an expert on the Middle East, but like as an anti-imperialist, you can take, you can still take a strong stance against like, you know, the wrongs of like, for example, the Assad regime, et cetera, without mm-hmm. supporting the sheer like incredible amount of like munitions-based violence that the U.S. reigns on the region. It's as easy as supporting the people, you know, it's as easy as like supporting the refugee population. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's anything but just like bombing the shit out of it and making it into like a fucking Swiss cheese zone. It's like that uh, Simpsons meme. It's like, we tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. It's like, like, what can we do to help Syria? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Is but that- like, maybe don't just immediately jump to bombing them. Has that really helped us in the last 20 years of like conflicts resolve literally anything yeah it's just it's just really baffling at this point how like not so much like the continuation of u.s imperialism but just the absolute like head in the sand response from liberals every time something like this happens (laughs) (laughs) frustrating too because it's like it's so frustrating because we had four uh, four years of this with uh with trump and the libs were were incensed about Mm -hmm. his involvement in syria which whatever that's a whole that could be a whole podcast in and of itself but the the responses the mental gymnastics to this drone strike where we're just horrific oh it's so different to have a president who is is not draw like dramatic it just just drops the bombs and that's that uh was that amy siskind that yeah that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So I'll read. I'll read out Amy Siskin's tweet here. So different having military action under Biden. No middle school level threats on Twitter. Trust Biden and his team's competence. I'm in hell. <laughs> there was another lady that was like, "Yeah, there's no like, there's no dramatics. It was quiet. It was in the middle of the night." And it's like that's bad. It's bad when the president unilaterally, without congressional approval bombs the shit out of people what i don't okay so the the warmongering is something that i expect from liberals at this point Mm -hmm. but it's the it's the excuses it's like our president has all the energy in the world to bomb people none of this energy to actually fight for this stimulus package that was promised to us to be rolled out immediately and we're on day 30 whatever of this administration and they're saying we're not going to get it till mid-march if that which we all kind of know have a feeling at this point that they're definitely not going to give it to us in march either well so it's like how do you defend that i I feel like part of this is this weird thing that has happened in in politics especially at this level where the candidate isn't judged by material a uh, material rubric it's it's this weird parasocial relationship the candidate has to be your friend or your mommy or your you know or like your your dad or uncle joe in this case and so like there's 
all of this desire to moralize everything in like a positive light, not trying to like shrink Amy Siskin here, but like fuck girl, like this is, this is bad. <laughs> I love it. Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I think what's really interesting that was, you've seen in the first month of the Biden presidency is so much of the liberal, like, I guess, agenda is like cognitive dissonance as Robert, mm -hmm. I think used the phrase earlier. Right. Um, and we're seeing this with, um, the issues with migrant children being moved to the sexier boxes or whatever at the border. I think like it, the real thing to come down on here is just the extent to which liberals want to live in like some kind of weird sitcom fantasy where things are just chill. Things are just fucking chill, you know, and it has no accounting for material conditions. It has no accounting for like violence and no accounting for the value of human life. Right. Mm. They just want to like fucking, I don't know, brunch and mimosas like is the meme. Right. Like it just always really irks me, though, that like this cognitive dissonance like of liberals is just so demoralizing you know because how do you how do you push back it's it's like it's like talking to a trump supporter in a lot of ways you know like there's no functional difference at this point it's literally team sports for them um and their guy won so now they don't have to think about the horrific consequences of what that means one of my mutuals uh muhammad was actually made a great point about this is you know the line that a lot of leftists are using is you know they bombed syria and sitting instead of giving us 2k Mm -hmm. And like, while that is an important point to make, and it's, you know, the thing that's on everyone's mind, it's, we should also reiterate as leftists that war is bad on its own. It is bad. Like, right. it doesn't matter, like these small scale escalations, um, as they're trying to like make this seem, they're trying to basically say like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're having these targeted uh, retaliations because we don't want to escalate things in the region. It's like, you don't want to escalate things in the region? Like, tell that to fucking Iraq, you know? Mm -hmm. Tell that to a million mm -hmm. Iraqis. Mm -hmm. Like, tell that to Iran, who um, has, a, like, all their fucking money tied up right now because of U.S. sanctions and shit. It's, it's just like, we are an occupying force in the region. Everything we do is escalation. Like, they, mm -hmm. nobody wants us there. Nobody wants us there. Like, it's just a fucked up, like, logic to solely focus on the 2K, although it is the easiest thing to radicalize a lot of people at this point in time. Yeah. What the anti-war movement needs to be focused on is the fact that there is a loss of human life happening and it's going to continue to happen until we all decide to not let it happen anymore, like collectively decide that enough is enough. Yeah. And I want to take it back to like a critique of liberals just because I love like slam dunking on those guys for a second. <laughs> Get them. Uh, but like I kind of want to perceive like uh, or I kind of want to like inquire as to like, you know, the cognitive dissonance issue as like its own form of maybe extremism or nationalism or something. Right. Like mm -hmm. if we think of nationalism as like and I'm getting deep into like, you know, the theory brain for a second. But like Benedict Anderson describes like an imagined community is sort of the basis of nationalism. Right. Mm -hmm. And like the picture they have in their heads of the United States is of this thing that is like inherently dignified, which is why you get like Amy Siskin tweeting stuff like, oh, it's so nice that we get to bomb a country and not have to give a shit about it over mimosas or whatever the fuck. Being able to sort of um, critique like liberals in this way as their own like form of like extremists, right? And that they want to buy into this fiction so badly of like America as like this cool place where cool things can happen. Like, and to recognize that as like morally bankrupt in itself because it doesn't account at all for like violence. It doesn't account at all for loss of human life. It doesn't account at all for like respecting the sovereignty of other like nations or communities. This is in itself like, it, it, like Amy Siskin, like as benign a tweet as that is, like is promoting violence. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, now what? what? <laughs> so now what? what? Yeah, yes, exactly. What? I mean, like, so we see this and Anna, I think your analysis is spot on. Mm-hmm. I think we know that neoliberalism leads to like fascism. We know that because these are the pathways that create these structures. This is the economic system that supports this structure, right? So so what do we do? What do you think we do, Anna? I think it's hard because like to describe like an anti-war movement in 2021 as a millennial, like, you know, I think all three of us have been living in a state of like endless war, like Mm -hmm. in our relations Mm -hmm. with the US. You know, I'm almost 30 years old and that's just sort of the situation that we're used to. Truthfully, like, like what does the anti-war movement look like right now for an individual? What it looks like to me is I honestly couldn't like, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, it took me a long time to reach the state of like um, kind of cynicism that I think a lot of leftists have been subsumed by for a while. I, I just not, I'm just not sure like I see a parliamentarian, uh, like a policy <laughs> answer to these things at this time. Right. I, I'd love to hear something more like optimistic from either of you two. But like to me, the, uh, to the point where like the United States feels as though like in terms of its pandemic response, in terms of its feelings of like any kind of national unity or community, like it feels like it's, it's just it's disintegrating a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel as though people are feeling pretty isolated and alone. And so to me, the concept of local power isn't a response to like war, you know, taking place on a global, uh, global scale, but like, it's almost all we've got, you know, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. to whatever extent we can build solidarity with like international communities and recognizing that at the heart of what we need to unite on is like solidarity against imperialism, solidarity against like the capital, the capitalist interests that fuel imperialism. Um, like that's like the, that's like the North star, right? Mm-hmm. Like to recognize mm-hmm. that the basis of all these is like capitalist interests. Like we are literally in Syria for the most part just to protect like, you know, more like oil interests to protect more like war technological interests to like be able to name the enemy and then to attack the enemy head on. And that enemy is here at home, right? It's like Boeing. It's like, you know, manufacturers of weapons. It's things like Amazon, which like invest heavily in surveillance technologies Mm -hmm. that operate both in overseas and here at our borders and here in our communities, here in our cities as well, like here in Atlanta. Like the first step is naming that enemy and going after that enemy. And maybe that fight is actually closer than we think. I I definitely... Oh, yeah, sorry. We're, we're, we're both about they're to agree. Like, yeah, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the fight, like, there is so, like, in in basically whatever American city you're living in right now, there is probably something fucking horrible and atrocious that we could be mm-hmm. fighting on a local level. And, yeah, Atlanta is one of the most surveilled cities in the country. And like, there's definitely a lot of, I think, mo- like, pushback against that happening now, especially with the Amazon workers' strikes, because they were utilizing, like, security companies mm-hmm. to surveil striking Amazon workers. So it's like that all these tools of imperialism that are being used overseas, well, they've been in use over here for yes. decades. And it's people are kind of now waking up to the seriousness of it. And I don't think that there's an easy answer that we just have to do A, B, and C. I think it's like a lot more nuanced, Anna, like you said, um, where we are going to have to figure out an anti-war movement from the ground up Mm. because technology has made it so it's, you know, it's not like battalions of troops are going over to, to engage in these, in these conflicts necessarily. It's, it's drone strike operators. What the fuck do you do? (laughs) Like, what do you do against that? Um, so I don't think there's a, yeah, there's, it's hard to stay optimistic about this. And it's so fucked up because when you're in the imperialist core, like we all are and you're and you are an anti-capitalist in the imperialist core you are so acutely aware of all these things and it can be so crushing 
there's a lot of education that needs to happen with the general populace as to like how much of the war machine is actually right in our neighborhoods yes. and how much is and how much of our government's money is actually going towards this. And I think like looking at hard numbers like economically can be a very radicalizing thing for people. Mm -hmm. And I that's why I still agree with using the you know, the line that, yeah, they're bombing Syria instead of giving us 2K because that is a useful analysis. It's a useful mm -hmm. material analysis. We always have to bring it back to the human level in a sense and be like, it, it is wrong to kill people. Like it is wrong to kill people on a mass scale because we, because of our interests in the region. Uh, Yazi, what were your thoughts on this? Okay. So, so I agree with, with both of you, but I think, you know, the anti-war movement of the 1960s has been completely neutered right like so now it's like hands off x country you have like a demo everybody shows out for the morning and then they go home right i think actually you know this this whole thing about how so much uh modern defense tech and resources are in our own backyards is actually an opportunity i live in san diego um which is a hotbed of defense tech and defense uh companies and i also live in a border town right san diego is a border town we are we are the home of the largest port of entry, uh, land port of entry in the US at San Isidro, which is hyper militarized as well. When we look at these uh, components, we should see opportunity to, to revamp the anti-war movement, to make it explicitly anti-capitalist because that's what's driving this, right? This industry yeah. to make it nimble and dynamic. We're not just talking, we're not just talking to like the government anymore because like they kind of don't give a fuck. We're, we're, we're threatening business. We're threatening enterprise, yes. right? Yes. You know what I'm saying? And we're, and we know, we know who it is. We know that it's not just the president, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it and Congress, right? We know that it's connected to business and we're, mm -hmm. we're going to stop that. And so I think for me, it's like, yeah, it's overwhelming and it's really heavy, but it's also an opportunity to really like revive a movement that has such a long legacy in a new way. So let's hit it y'all. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. Let's fucking get this shit started. And you know what? Um, if you're listening now and you have and you are interested uh, in coming on the show and talking about this, if you or your organization are doing any kind of work around this, please come on the show. Give us some hope. Like, give us some ideas on how we can help out. Because, like, again, this is not the podcast where we just become doomers and forget mm -hmm. that we have any power in this situation. It's like we can bring all these ideas to fruition. We can organize around these things. Um, and we probably will have somebody on the show to talk about this um, with a little bit more authority. But I I really enjoyed talking to you all about this. Anna, thank you so much for coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to finally hook up with you because <laughs> like we've been talking about this for like months. <laughs> and yeah, we're finally here. <laughs> you guys have been so great. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So where can we find you online? Oh yeah. Um, I'm just, uh, uh, women be posting. I'm at doc vision on Twitter, like doctor, um, like the opposite of fusion. Um, come say hi. I, you know, it's quarantine. I need friends, that kind of thing. Hell yeah. We'll hang out too. We'll like, we'll do some zoom shit or oh, some social yeah. or some socially distant shit. Cause we live in the same city. So that works. Uh, <laughs> email us at hot girl agenda at Gmail. If you've got a cool project, we want to gas up your project. So yes. if you've got cool organizing projects, email us so we could talk about it maybe have you on the show be really cool do it yes and subscribe to the patreon patreon.com slash hot girl agenda because um I, I i want an editor <laughs> i need an editor please please don't make me listen to my voice anymore all right we'll see you next week on hot girl agenda thanks y'all thank you bye, bye.